Okay, we are now live on YouTube and all the subscribing platforms. Charles Moskowitz, Monday through Friday, 12 to 1 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. Adam Kornozuski is my guest. He's a veteran of the U.S. Marine Corps, educated at Columbia University, University of Pennsylvania, extensive background in military intelligence, technology, behavioral and evolutionary psychology, internet culture. Um, Adam, first of all, thanks for joining me this afternoon. Thank you for having me. All right. So, Adam, you are going to help us make sense of this uh, situation with the GameStop purchases on Robinhood and what that meant. Why did that? Uh, why was that such an aggravation to the big hedge fund investors? And why did Robinhood shut down their investors? Absolutely. Absolutely. It'd be my pleasure. Uh, do you want me to start off with, uh, with kind of my overall thesis? Yes, please. So, uh, you know, there's much to do about the um, GameStop purchasing by the retail investor. And it'll, it's a very complicated situation, but basically the uh, hedge fund industry and the media that's around the financial services, the financial news like CNBC was very upset that uh, these major alternative asset managers were uh, being what's called short squeezed or that their uh, short positions are being, are losing money at that point. And really it's the hedge funds fault, but they're looking to blame somebody. And so what, what's better to blame than the regular person who's a just moving relatively small amounts of dollars in the market. All right, now, before we go further, I want to get into some definitions. Uh, first of all, the short selling is something that I understand was one of the major causes for the stock market implosion of 2008. Um, and at that time, that was before regular people had as easy an access to stock purchases such as they now have through things like Reddit and uh, by communicating with each other and online apps like Robinhood. But can you explain to my listeners and to me exactly what short selling is? Absolutely. So what short selling is, is when a somebody wants to put a short on a stock, they go ahead and they quote unquote borrow a stock from somebody who has a, a long position on it or is a market maker, which is somebody who just trades the stocks back and forth as a uh, broker or middleman. Um, and then they sell it at that price. And uh, in order, to, and then on a contract to purchase it later, again, at a lower price, and you make the money off of a short sell based off the difference between the initial price that you sold the stock at and what you repurchased it at later. Okay, so why would someone want to rent or lease this stock to another person or group? So it's uh, for especially large institutional investors like alter like hedge funds and alternative asset managers. It's the easiest way to profit off of a stock going down in price. Um, it also forms a kind of a risk management hedge or what the hedge fund is actually supposed to be doing against a uh, stock that they purchase a long position or they just bought normally. Um, from going down. So they uh, usually pick one in one industry and another in another industry, sometimes competitors that they think one's going to go up, one's going to go down. And that's how they're supposed to make their money in the stock market. So then when they purchase the lease for a stock, they're taking a look at a company, in this case, it was GameStop, with the assumption that that company was going down. And at that time, GameStop stock was worth a lot less because of a lot of factors. I mean, the, the pandemic, people aren't buying, going to the stores, the retail you know, stores are down generally. And they then purchased these leases on that stock at a low price 
with the assumption that it was going to drop further and that people who had leased it to them would then have to make up the difference by buying back the stock at that same price? Well, at a lower price. So they would, uh, they would return the asset but um, and make the money off the decline of the price. But basically, exactly, they're, they're expecting GameStop to continue going further down in price at the time. Now, does that, by their doing this, and in the case of this one hedge fund, they had really purchased almost a majority position in GameStop. Are they actually contributing to the demise of GameStop? And is that their intent? Yes. Uh, so some short sellers actually have the ability to completely crush a company out of existence or at least get it delisted. Um, there's a famous short seller who also went, uh, went under uh, called, uh, his name's Andrew Left at Citron uh, Research. And uh, he, for a while back in around 2013, 2014 period, he was going after Chinese shell companies. And so he made a killing off of that, uh, just crushing these companies into oblivion. Um, so it's not that it's necessarily nefarious or not, but um, they can uh, potentially actually crush a company out of existence to the stock market. And the reason they can is because by leasing the stock, they're essentially freezing it from becoming capitalized. In other words, it's in a state of suspension. So if a company is struggling, they then are like choked off from gaining any capital. Exactly. And also too, it just looks bad. A lot of uh, the market operates off of what's called social proof or what people believe uh, is the actual intrinsic value of a stock. And so if there's a huge uh, short position on your company, then you generally look bad. And mm -hmm. these are very small communities between finance and business that they can actually, they, rumors get around quite quickly on this, these kinds of things. Right. Like in a sense, the stock market can be very psychological and it can be very appearance based in that, uh, you know, if like if the chairman of the Federal Reserve says something or if, or if the president says something or if anyone in position of influence might say something one way or the other, it can affect the stock market. And it also is affected by news. I mean, if something negative is going on in the world or positive, you know, like when Donald Trump was first elected, the stock market soared um, for reasons that might have had more to do with psychology than the actual election. But uh, what these guys are doing in the big hedge funds by buying these contracts, these leases, you know, by short buying in, the, in that they're assuming that a company is going down, it's not illegal. And in a sense, it could almost be viewed as somewhat of a, um, a, an advancement or advanced view of a future of a particular company. But it seems like it was something that was done really exclusively by the biggest players on Wall Street. And wasn't, isn't this kind of a more modern phenomenon? This wasn't done back in the 1930s. I mean, it seems like this really started with uh, around 2008. Is that right? So it actually starts a little bit earlier back in uh, the around the first hedge funds. Um, but, you know, in terms of like the 1930s, there was ways of quote unquote short selling um, back then. Um, and primarily they were done by brokers on the exchange itself, meaning they were people who were actually on the floor and mm -hmm. uh, they would be borrowing paper um, and trading stocks that way in the kind of the old school sense. But, you know, you used to not be able to trade as much volume. And the thing with short selling is that there's unlimited downside. So if you can't cover your position, you could actually um, basically implode completely out of existence as a uh, trader. And that's kind of what these hedge funds failed to do was to appropriately manage their own risk. 
Um, you know, there's normally rocket scientists, literal rocket scientists, uh, who are employed by these funds to protect these companies um, to, and because they have, you know, multi-billions of dollars often to, that they're managing. And so they're supposed to be working on protecting their own, uh, their own investments, but they didn't do that this time. But in terms of when short selling began, you know, probably one of the most famous um, activist investors, uh, George Soros, uh, began his career um, uh, infamously with the breaking the uh, the, uh, the British pound sterling. Thank you. Uh, sorry, I sometimes stutter over that word. And uh, you know, and so like he's uh, he's actually extremely famous for the, his uh, his kind of novel use of a lot of trading techniques, as well as a lot of his contemporaries. The thing is, he just has better marketing than most of them. So that's why we know about his. Right, and also I think he was dealing in, in a very complex issue of the value of currencies. Right. And in a sense, he was operating perhaps on insider information that may have emanated from central banks that would indicate when interest rates were going to be changing in a given nation. And in that case, he was able to short sell the British pound sterling, which almost led to a, dep a, 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 um, a depression in Britain, and I think there was a, um, you know, he was indicted. I don't think he can go to Great Britain today. He might be arrested. Did the same thing, I think, to Malaysia and some other uh, situations. Um, but, I mean, wouldn't a company or, or, or a hedge fund really lose, though, if a company actually did go under? I mean, how would they then be able to recoup the loss? So they would go to court and during uh, bankruptcy settlements, they would uh, gain some of the assets back uh, from, or the value of the assets after being sold. I see. So they, it would be a, a very long out, drawn out process. Most of, these companies, most of these short sellers don't want that to happen at all. There's a few activistic investors out there who use um, oftentimes international uh, currency like uh, Soros, but Soros is, probably didn't make most of his money off of currency trading, but also, uh, sovereign debt. Um, so they would take a lot of, some of these activistic investors will take countries to court who won't, aren't able to pay what they've uh, issued on debt. And they, it's kind of predatory, but it's at, at the same time kind of forcing responsibility. So there's a real mix of whether or not, you know, this is a moral thing uh, to do necessarily. But um, yeah, they, most funds actually try to avoid the actual bankruptcy and settlement process just because they want to be able to cash out because the lawyers are expensive and mm -hmm. courts take a long time. Right. But of course, some of the big hedge funds are in a position where they could sustain that for a while, while the little guy who might have owned stock is, is held holding the bag. Now, in the case of uh, GameStop, in other words, this was kind of a game that was played by really the big players, you know, what, what Occupy Wall Street used to call the top 1%, um, you know, people like George Soros and others. And yet with the GameStop situation, you had some people who got some kind of inside information that this was going on with that company. They then alerted people through social media, Reddit in particular, which basically created a, a bit of a buzz on this. And people started to buy in before the short stop event happened so that when it did happen, they were then locked in and they would also benefit from the sale. Is that what happened? Sort of. Um, it's not insider information as the SEC classifies it as, which would be a, a criminal offense. Um, there's this form that's filed by uh, 
I believe it's the alternative asset manager itself. It's called a 13F, which uh, puts the position of, um, of where they are trading on certain stocks. And so if somebody was enterprising enough, and they're probably working finance, to be honest, because they would have to know what it is, where to look it up, and how to do it. It's been a while since I've had to even bother with something like that. So I'm not 100% sure where to find it off the top of my head. Um, and they just saw that GameStop was so overshorted that basically the position was way was untenable for any asset manager to uh, happen. Mm-hmm. And so putting that onto a place like Reddit, um, especially with this kind of populist uprising that we we're seeing in the United States, people are willing to um, go go fight the system, fight the establishment in any means that it uh, represents. And so it only took a really a few thousand retail investors, maybe a few thousand dollars, maybe a couple million tops to really um, start crushing these short-selling hedge funds uh, that were overshorted on a position. So then what would happen is that by by entering an, an incursion into that company through the purchase of stock, they the, the stock price did not go down. It was actually artificially actually increased because I think that the massive increase, which went up anywhere from $20 a share to I think almost $400 a share, was not based on any actual production on the part of shortstop. They didn't do anything different. They were still the same people. It had to do with this huge influx of capital that came in from these large numbers of small investors. And the more the stock went up, the more the big hedge fund people are losing money because they were betting that the stock would go down. So every time it went up, they'd lose millions of dollars. And I think in a sense, my understanding is that the big hedge fund involved here, which I don't know the name of, maybe you do, they lost billions of dollars in this, didn't they? So it's Melvin Capital, but Melvin Capital was invested in by other hedge funds as well. Okay. Um, and they're primarily a short seller. And uh, they basically completely went under. Um, I don't know what their process of uh, their bankruptcy proceeding is at, or if they are going to be going forward with it, if they can't get another loan from another hedge fund. Because in this space, primarily hedge funds are the only people who will loan you money because it's considered a more risky asset management class. Um, but yeah, so they, um, you know, other other funds include Citadel that's uh, taken a hit. Point uh, seventy two was famous in the fact that they uh, made the loan to Melvin Capital. Um, there's Citron Research is uh, uh, probably gone to be honest. It, well, the research arms probably not, but the actual trading of the money may mm-hmm. very well be. Um, and so, yeah, like they, uh, these retail investors were able to start pushing up the stock price and let's call it short squeeze, which means that in order for a fund to recover the price, they would have to uh, spend way more money than they initially sold the stock for to uh, what's called cover it. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's where the unlimited loss can come into play because it's a, you know, you think of it as a series of percentages and ratios that you basically can take a thousand percent hit on something more just from the, a stock going up um, in price. And that's somewhat what happened. And then because of this was occurring, some other uh, larger investors, like uh, people, individual people, like I think his name's Ray Cohen, um, and then uh, David Portnoy, as well as uh, some uh, traditional asset managers like BlackRock and Fidelity and all these uh, started putting money into it because they felt like they could ride the, ride the tidal wave coming up. So they were put. They were putting money in after the fact when they saw the stock going up, not as as short sellers, but actually as investors. 
Now, before the rest of us lumpen proletarians out here start to ride a, a wave of schadenfreude, we should right. note that these hedge funds, even though it, it's kind of delicious to see them get stuck on their own patards, nevertheless, they hold investments from our grandparents. I mean, they hold pension funds. They hold people's assets that they'd worked all their life to develop. So, you know, it's not such a wonderful idea to see a big hedge fund go under because that big hedge fund can be you. You know, you, you know your retirement fund might be invested in it. Absolutely. And that's actually a very important point. I'm glad that you brought that up. Um, you know, there, like, there is a predatory behavior by some hedge funders, but most of them are uh, trying to uh, squeeze yield for uh, things like pension funds and retirement plans. Because nowadays, with uh, the fact that bond prices are just, uh, the yields are so low, uh, they have uh, assets and uh, um, money has to go out of, uh, out of the traditional asset managers to be able to find yield so that your retirement is safe by the time you actually become of the retirement age. So there is a lot of uh, problems intrinsic to it with uh, funds going under. But at the same time, I think it's worth noting that this phenomena of short selling in, in such a large scale is ethically questionable. It's not illegal. And that maybe there can be some reforms put in place. And also that these people who did this through Reddit, you know, these small investors, they weren't doing anything any differently than what these big hedge funds were doing. So, you know, they didn't do anything wrong by doing this. And yet the Robinhood app, which allows for small investors to dabble in stock, you know, you can open an app and a Robinhood account for like a hundred bucks and start dabbling. I mean, I considered doing it, I didn't, but you know, you can do a little, you know, little investment on the side. They decided to step in because I think more than 50% of these purchases were made using that app. They stepped in and they put a stop to it. They put like a stop loss. We're not going to offer this anymore. Uh, were they responding to pressure either from the hedge funds or did they respond to pressure maybe from the treasury department of the Biden administration? Um, probably both. And it's probably much more sinister sounding than that. So Robinhood's a uh, pre-IPO uh, venture invested uh, startup still, basically. Uh, one of their uh, key investors and key partners is Citadel, which is one of the hedge funds that are in question. Ah. Um, and they use, so how does Citadel, how does Robinhood make uh, make it so easy and so cheap, well, inexpensive, pardon me, um, for a, a investor to, a uh, retail investor to trade? Well, they, what they do is they first go to what's called a pool, uh, which is the equity pools inside a asset manager, not the actual market itself, but who, whoever has like just loose equities that they're trying to dump into mm -hmm. the market. And they get that's where they get their favorable volume and favorable prices for the retail investor. However, one of the biggest ones happens to be Citadel because Citadel is a um, not only a hedge fund, but it's also a market maker. It's actually one of the largest market makers for options trading. So they're just sitting on pools and pools of equity um, that they ha have to be actively working on dumping just because they can't hold it on their portfolio because they're trying to make a market rather than be the, uh, be an asset manager on the Citadel security side. It's very complicated. And I'm trying to like just gloss I over. I mean, does it work a little bit like an insurance company in that they have to maintain a pool of assets in order to cover uh, yeah spots if somebody decides to sell. I mean, and there are regulations around that. I mean, you cannot go into the insurance business. You know, you can't just open up a shop and declare yourself involved with life insurance. 
unless you have certain levels of assets that you can demonstrate to the state where you register your company so that you can cover claims. So the same thing is true with something like Robinhood or any of these groups. They have to have assets put aside to cover claims. And it's very similar to that. And also just from the fact that, you know, humans take time to trade things. So if, um, you know, Citadel is trying to move something back to the stock market, this actual stock exchange, well, some uh, call will come in or an order will come in from Robinhood. And so they'll give the give it to a Robinhood investor uh, because they can get rid of, uh, they can dump the, uh, the thing that they don't want as easily um, because of it. So, um, and the thing is Robinhood's uh, uh, extremely low fee. It's basically free for a retail investor. And one of the things that most people have to realize is that when you're doing something for free online, you are the product, you're not the customer. And who is the customer? Well, it's places like Citadel are the customer because they get to uh, profit off of uh, executing your trades but also too, they get to know all your trade data. They know get to see volume as it's coming in and out, and they get to uh, you know potentially like uh, what what's the new accusation is that they're being accused of front running trades, which is that they put a trade in like a half second earlier than you do and get a couple pennies extra on the price than you uh, put that you're asking for than that you're asking for, so that they can uh, profit off of your trade itself um, because they trade move so much volume in a day. That right. they make multi millions just off of uh, uh, literally a handful of pennies uh, difference in pricing. Right, and they make a lot of their money off the off the buy and the sell. You know, that's how right. people back in the nineteen nineties, I think, like Ivan Bosky, made all their money. It wasn't right. from trade. It wasn't from the value up and down. It was from the fact that there was this huge volume of trades, and they get fees, and they get little fines, and you know, they, we're talking nickels and dimes that add up to billions of dollars. But it sounds like if Robinhood is actually partially, at least, owned by or funded by Citadel, and that Citadel was doing the short selling of, of, of um, GameStop, then Robinhood either got caught with its pants down because they didn't realize that their own investors were going to be buying up these, uh, these stocks or they were involved with something maybe a little more sinister. I mean, what was going on with that? And that's the thing, there's a real question of conflict of interest that I hope will be addressed eventually with uh, Citadel, these other alternative asset managers having, uh, being clients of Robinhood basically, as well as the retail investor. You know, the venture capital model is so that uh, wealthy people, billionaires uh, who find young people who have really good ideas, who don't have money, they put money into these companies so that they can grow um, really good ideas. And this is, a, this is the prime example of a conflict of interest where Robinhood, which is a, both a client and also a investment vehicle for them, um, is, is uh, on the other side of the trade. And you know, this, is, this is why these hedge funds and all these asset managers and banks and all these have like armies and armies of people to uh, do all these work for them just because they, that way they know that they control the process. But as a retail investor, you have no control over the process. Unless if you're trading through a place like Vanguard or BlackRock using ETFs. Um, but you know that's the only, that's only way, because you'll be using their protection. But if you're just trading on the open market through Robinhood, well, you know the fact that Citadel is gonna be having access to your trade uh, information it's a real conflict of interest. And so there's an ethical dilemma, even if it's not legal. I don't believe there's actually 
a specific case out there on something similar to this. So there's going to be a lot of changes because of this um, happenstance. I really hope they're going to be for the better. So uh, Adam, what do you see or what are you recommending as somebody who's worked in this field for a long time uh, in terms of reform and how likely is that to happen? So what I recommend basically is uh, for a place like Citadel probably has to uh, spin off a different vehicle uh, or a different company to manage their uh, venture investments because you don't want to tell them they have to divest from their own property because they also own, uh, you know, they, they're, they're entitled to what they, were, they, they purchased as well. Um, and so also too, I think there has to be SEC investigation as to communications between Robinhood, Citadel, um, the SEC itself, Treasury, all these different uh, regulatory um, associations and agencies um, as to what was going on in the background because Robinhood was extremely flat-footed. They didn't even have a, a proper statement for 12 to 14 hours afterwards. And at that point, they were blaming it on volatility. Well, that's what people want to make money off of is volatility. That's how you make money in the stock market. So right. it's a bad answer, you know? And so it's a, um, it's a real problem uh, really kind of going forward with that. But real, realistically, given um, the current Treasury Department, and I worked at the Treasury Department uh, under the Trump administration, mm -hmm. is that uh, the current Treasury Department is very much in line with the Wall Street interests. Right. Yeah. Janet Yellen has uh, received eight hundred and ten thousand uh, dollars of speaker speaking fees alone from Citadel itself. Um, you know, then also to like their conflict of interest, isn't it? I mean, I I understand she actually has received a total of seven million dollars as an economic consultant to to various Wall Street companies. Absolutely, and that's that's a huge conflict of interest, and there's probably a number of people out there in the Biden administration that have similar connections to it, uh, to these asset managers, and uh, both alternative and non-alternative, or would be potentially hired down the road as some sort of advisor uh, to manage um, equity trades and all these kinds of things. So, you know, they're probably gonna figure out a way to clamp down on the retail investors. And the reason why I think that is because they made a much to do on CNBC and Bloomberg uh, about all these retail investors uh, short squeezing them. And realistically, it's not just the retail investors, it's other major asset managers. So like, who do they blame though? They blamed the regular person out there on Main Street. Uh, right, they, they basically, the New York Times called everybody involved in this a white supremacist. I don't know how they came up with that. Right, and right. Who knows why, you know, I guess anybody that disagrees with the Biden administration must be a white supremacist. But, you know, it sounds like, the whole movement now in the Biden administration is a return to the big Wall Street international control of, of the economy. And BlackRock is, is a European company. I think it's primarily owned by the Rothschild family. And you, know, you have uh, these big, big players, these international merchant banks and investing companies that are now going to once again be enthroned in terms of getting to decide who gets what. And as you say, the retail investors, the little guy, you know, people, the mom and pops, they're, they're gonna be screwed. I don't mean to sound, you know, kind of, I know I'm getting kind of class conscious here, but that, that's sort of in a nutshell what I see happening. Well, like sort of like bringing back 10,000 feet, I tell people it's like, 
Marx was wrong. Class warfare comes from the top, not from the bottom. Mm -hmm. And that's what's happening is they're going to clamp down on the regular person. They're going to increase the uh, difficulty for regular people to day trade or actively trade and uh, under the guise of protecting them. Um, you know, and that's the thing is like uh, all sorts of uh, um, the, the thing with all these investment managers because uh, is that most of them are de facto international. And that's kind of the Washington consensus, which is, um, you know, if you just quickly Wikipedia, it, that's basically kind of the, the post uh, Kennedy round um, international finance consensus that's uh, run out of the IMF and these things like that. And it's kind of a return to like the Clinton era, Bush era, um, you know, this transactional uh, fi international financial relationship and that's really kind of the way that a lot of these establishment players in D.C. work is that they look for, you know, OK, how does this uh, give me a large check at the end of the day? And, you know, that's what happens with uh, a lot of these financial institutions and all that. And that's why, like, they've been able to kind of run roughshod over uh, the media, over um, the average person, et cetera, in, is because they're, that's just how the game is played down in D.C. And so it's a very problem, problematic issue because... You know, when you have an administration like the Biden administration, who basically ran off of the grift, uh, basically you're going to have grift at all new levels because of this. And a uh, thing like this, they're just going to use as a justification to accelerate the grift. Yeah, I mean, you have a return to this kind of hyper libertarian internationalist free trade model. I mean, whereas uh, the Trump administration wanted to engage in some protectionism to protect American industry and American labor. And, uh, you know, the America first concept, which of course they are now throwing out the window and they want to turn, you know, everything over to some unelected international um, bureaucracy and sort of make the United States an, a, a province of the world. Absolutely. And that's, that's exactly true. And, you know, the post, uh, you know, the post 1960s neoliberal consensus really demands that the United States be looted. And that's really kind of what they're going for here. Um, and, you know, you, you hit it right on the spot is like this, you know, if it can't be done by domestic organizations, they use their multinational conglomerates to do it. They use their multilateral uh, NGOs and uh, uh, international banking and governmental organizations to do it. And, um, you know, and that's the thing is it's exactly exactly the way you're describing is that it's a mechanism by which they turn America into a province of the world. That's such an excellent way of putting it. And also I think it's manifesting in some of these very, these inexplicable and rather odd executive orders that this president signed and they were sitting on his desk the minute he walked into the Oval Office, including canceling the XL pipeline and rejoining the Paris Peace Accords under the guise that this is somehow going to be good for the environment. I mean, quite the opposite is the case. I mean, it's actually, not only did it, it, it mean that on day one, 11,000 people lost their job in the United States, plus, which probably means closer to 100,000 if you take a look at all the ancillary industries that were you know, part of that, not to mention in Canada but that it means that Canadian dirty oil is gonna to have to be trucked into the United States or sent in here on a rail, which is much more dangerous environmentally. Uh, the Accord, the Paris Peace Accords, whatever they are, the, the environment, I don't think Russia and China are members, which they're gonna to continue to 
emit dirty carbon into the atmosphere. All it does is put, put a break on the United States and the Western democracies. It's a gift to the oil companies because it's gonna raise the price of oil. Uh, they are all hurting because you know, of, of recent developments and they wanted some kind of a handout. And that's gonna hurt working people. It's gonna be the cost of everything because if oil goes up, the cost of energy goes up, everybody gets hurt. You know, it costs more expensive to get anything from point A to point B. Well, and that's the point of raising costs of energy is to deindustrialize the United States. You know, you think about it, the United States has the largest cost of uh, doing basic utilities because we're just such a complicated country. We're like, um, compared to even the United Kingdom, we have a lot more complexities involved. And that's why we have such a high energy need and all that. And in order to kind of reindustrialize the United States, like uh, the president, or sorry, President Trump wanted, um, I still call him the president. I got to get used to like- It's hard to believe actually, yeah. I know what you mean. It's, uh, it, it's even harder to believe when you're walking around here when this city's like a ghost town. I'm in DC for the record. Um, right. And so, you know, it's part of the effort to deindustrialize the United States. Why is that? Well, the United States, for most of its history, has been the most anti-neoliberal country uh, that we've ever seen on the face of the planet. And so what does China benefit? Well, China benefits from uh, the fact that they are favored to in continue industrialization at the expense of the United States, North America as a whole, um, you know, to include Mexico. Like Mexico is also affected by this stuff. Uh, the European Union, you know, any sort of country that is part of like that first world bloc uh, during the Cold War are uh, basically harmed by this. And there's an entire class of uh, corporate leaders um, and politicians out there who benefit from this, from this uh, rapid- Wait, I mean, it, 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 President Trump tried to take a swipe at the trade deficit with China. He tried to put in place and did put in place tariffs, which meant that uh, you know, American industry was protected with the monies raised from the tariff, which is a tax, going back to American industries, particularly farms. He tried to address the issue of cybersecurity and all of these other things. It seems to me that now that's all out the window and that there are people in the Biden administration. I don't want to mention names, but they include the guy at the top who very well may be compromised by China. And it's not just in this country either. It's happening in other countries around the world. Absolutely. And uh, that's exactly what you see with uh, the recent treaty Germany signed with, uh, well, Germany, the European Union technically signed with China. It, uh, it has protectionist measures for German industry, but they went and sold out a lot of the peripheral uh, countries industry. And uh, I was, I was funny because I was fighting people on Twitter about this and they were like, well, we were, uh, divesting ourselves from the United States and like we're becoming European nationalists. So it's like, no, you're just becoming a colony of China. Like, and this is the, the this brass tax time is like, if you trade soybeans for computer parts, you're a colony, you know? And that's really what, uh, what we're down to is it's that simple. Like all this uh, nonsense about um, international free trade and uh, governmental organizations and all that. Your, a real country has to produce its own goods at the end of the day, or as much of it as they physically can. A country like the United States can produce most of what it needs ever. That's right, which is, of course, you know, benefits American industry, American labor, American tax base, American capital accumulation, American way of life. And, uh, you know, in, in Europe, also, this Paris Agreement 
is going to make Europe more dependent on Russia. Once again, Russia will hold the spigot on, on oil and gas. Um, and, uh, you know, therefore they'll hold political sway over East, over Western and, and midsection in Western Europe. So, right. you know, if you're gonna hurt American sovereignty, essentially you're hurting the sovereignty of all sovereign nations. It's not, you know, sovereignty in and of itself is a progressive idea. And we're going back to an old world order regressive phenomena. I didn't even mention the fact that I think on day one or day two, the Biden administration began to ramp up again these perpetual international wars. They said they sent troops into Syria. They want to, you know, put a surge into Iraq. You know, we're going back to this policy that's been in place in this country really since World War II. It was talked about by the historian Charles Austin Beard in the 1920s, who wrote a book about World War I, which, he, which is called Perpetual War for Perpetual Peace. That's been the policy of the United States ever since. That was what Trump tried to move step away from. And I think that probably more than anything is what enraged the establishment against Trump because they want the big arms deals. They want the big you know, war infrastructure. And you know he was a peace president. I know there wasn't a single war that occurred under his watch. Right, and that's the thing is like you think about it. These people are uh, neoliberal fundamentalists, and it's a weird way to say it because they're uh, hyper secular, even atheistic at the same time. Um, so I, how, what does that mean? It's like well, back in the 1840s of all times, you saw uh, the rise of what was became known as liberal interventionism during the Victorian era where the British empire would invade places that refused to trade with them. Um, and they basically were trying to solve for what happens when someone doesn't want to cooperate with your peace treaty. Uh, and because they, at that time, the British empire had already seized all like coastal lands that they ever wanted. So they started ingressing inwards into the interior of these continents. And so, you know, that's really like what like Abraham Lincoln was fighting against with uh, Henry Clay was fighting against was this, uh, constant barrage of uh, British uh, economic warfare during that time frame, and it's it's actually uh, repeating itself. But unfortunately, we adopted a lot of the British Empire after we won the Second World War, um, and, and especially in a way to try to fight the Soviet Union. And so, like th that's the thing is the reason why the Democrats are wanting to do all these wars and like all these savage wars of peace or whatever you like to call them is because they are uh, liberal, neoliberal fundamentalists. They wholly believe in the fact that they can create a universal man, either through um, economic subjugation or by force. Um, and they, they're not willing to let people. Yeah, yeah, it's disgusting. And it's not, it's not rational. It's like, you're not gonna create a new kind of man. I mean, this is the whole idea of communism, actually. There's exactly. Kind of new, they're going to fashion a new consciousness, a new reality that they that reality doesn't come from the creator; it comes from them. That they're going to decide what's true. And you talk about you know at the economic imperialism of the British Empire, which I think you're right. It was it was supplanted by the United States after World War II because Britain was spent. Um, you know, maybe a, a recent example of that in the first days of the Biden administration is. Finance is, is American taxpayer funding of abortion yep. in foreign countries. I mean, these are countries that in many cases are conservative countries. They're Muslim countries. They don't want abortion. All of a sudden, now this is like a stick where you have to 
you know, open the door and, and allow abortion or we're going to penalize you. Right. And it's, it's extremely sick. You think about it, you know, at the same time, these people are complaining that uh, Poland came out with a document saying that they would probably lose a land war with Russia in five days. And it's like these people also screech about China or Russia or whoever's the boogeyman du jour, but they, they want to spend U.S. political capital on uh, forcing abortion on countries that can uh, sometimes are at risk of famine. Like, uh, and it's not, and it's like these, you know, these things are, um, you know, it's funny because when you read Robert Malthus, um, he never really subscribed to population control. It's the people who interpreted his stuff afterwards believed in population control. Right. And, and that's the thing is like, there's this whole entire concept inbound in with it. And it's like going back to the comparisons of Victorian Britain, you know, there's an entire effort back then for uh, global population control, um, you know, climate issues, because they believe that the world was getting colder and colder because of industrialization. Um, and there's all sorts of these things that were occurring then were popping back up. And, you know, it's just going back to there's nothing new under the sun now. No, and they're pushing the same hysterical conspiracy theories that, you know, they push. They say that, that conservatives are into conspiracy theories. I mean, these are real, you know, chicken little, you know, hanky, handy penny, the sky's falling kind of stuff. Doom and gloom. And unfortunately, younger people are, are completely taken in by this stuff. You know, it's, it's taught in the schools and it, it's creating a worldview that is based on just a negative doom and gloom uh, conception. And then, of course, the final coup de grace is the uh, control of the big tech of the media. Uh, you know, people like myself and you are trying to have a legitimate political conversation. We're looking at issues that, that affect the future we're debating. And we're, the likelihood of our doing that is shrinking. Uh, you know, we have uh, just before the uh, inauguration, Twitter completely uh, de removing the sitting president of the United States from Twitter. You know, that was something that Trump could reach millions of people directly. I mean, it was very innovative. It was, uh, you know, in, he used the Internet the same way that FDR used the, the radio chat. Well, Kennedy used the television. I mean, these are modern means of communication to reach people directly. And that was taken away. And then uh, Parler was canceled, which meant that people who had hundreds of thousands of followers have been purged. They cannot communicate any longer with their right. followers. Now, I mean, I'm doing this program. One of the reasons I'm trying to do so many different live streams at the same time and right now I have over 10 going all at the same time is because, you know, I'm assuming that at any time, one or two of them are going to be pulled away. And I'm determined to do this program every day, even if I have just one left. And, you know, but, but that's the world we're in right now. I mean, this morning, TikTok notified me that I was had been banned from doing a live stream. Wow. I don't know what it is I said. I was, you know, engaging in a kind of a similar talk that we're having now but something triggered the algorithm. I don't think it was a person. Some word I might've used triggered something and all of a sudden, boom, that's gone. So, you know, this is, you know, we're entering into a time where freedom of opinion, freedom of expression, the right to engage in debate and dialogue 
is, is shrinking and is tightening. What do you think, Adam, is going to happen with that? Well, either we have to win or basically it's going to continue locking down further and further till basically like anything left of, and I hate to use her as a reference point, AOC is uh, banned from, uh, from the uh, public discourse. And that's the thing is it becomes the Popperian idea to bring us back to Soros uh, of like having to be intolerant to uh, things that we find intolerable, um, it, it turns you into like this uh, Orwellian type of uh, uh, reality where like you, you, you have to be more radically progressive, more radically left wing, uh, more radically, but at the same time, more radically pro uh, corporation for pro uh, free labor, pre, pro um, you know, mass immigration, these things like that, that becomes to a level of absurdity. And a system like that cannot survive. And that's why, like, you know, people, people for a long time wanted to figure out why Russia, China, North Korea, Iran, all these like countries that sometimes are rivals of the United States or enemies or outright of the United States didn't want a thing to do with the post-Cold War, uh, War consensus. And they, they, they saw it coming down the pipe. They're like, we want our esoteric ways of life. We want to keep it that way. And, you know, despite our current relationships with some of them, you know, unfortunately, like some of them were kind of right in some regards that, you know, that they don't, they, they think they, they are doing a better job and they get to watch us as we kind of boil our own frogs in a pot. And, you know, the thing is, it's the reason why they're clamping down so hard though, is because they're actually genuinely scared for the first time, you know, ever since 2014, when, uh, basically, people, a bunch of people were complaining about video games journalism ramped up to Brexit, to Donald Trump, to all these things consecutively. You know, the Capitol got stormed like basically um, 28 days ago. I'm just doing rough math off my ca uh, computer. Um, we had this GME thing that we're talking about now. Like this, like the number of popular uprisings against um, kind of this like hyper control hyper neurotic control mechanisms that people are trying to put into place is just ramping up over and over and over again. And the thing that they're, they want out of us is like, we, they want us to overreact. And so far we haven't given it to them. So they're going to overreact until they get an overreaction out of us. And the thing is they're losing. They don't have kids. They, they're, you know, the thing that why uh, Donald Trump was terrifying to them is if he had a second term, Many of these people who are in charge of like keeping uh, the order in the post Cold War consensus are just too old to keep in stay in power, and so they need to have those extra years of being able to do what they want, so they can keep this, uh, the grift going as long as they can. But a, a second Donald Trump term would meant that some of them would be too old to function. Some of them would be just outright dead from old age. Oh yeah, I mean a second term of Trump. I mean, people were already waking up in this country and in this world. And it was a genuine threat to this kind of informal merge between the oligarchs and select private businesses in, in media and big tech and, and elsewhere. You know, that's by the way, the classic definition of fascism. Right. And so that's why they did not want a second term of Trump. We can't even talk about that too much, you know, in terms of what, how that actually <laughs> happened. Right, right. Because that's verboten, if you know what I mean. Yeah, exactly. But, but let's suffice to say that 
now we're, you know, you know, your thesis is that they are frightened and that they're in the Alaska. I think that I hope and pray that you're right, but I think that it's either that or that they are just moving forward with full, you know, intent of locking down absolute control by means of, of, of technologies, you know, not just, this isn't the old days when you'd have Napoleon, you know, crossing into Moscow, this, or, or for that matter, Hitler crossing into Poland with tanks. Now they've got technologies, they've got satellites, they've got, you know, the internet, they've got the means of communication, they can control the means of, of, of everything. So I think that, you know, they seem to be uh, trying to keep an upper hand on that. It's, uh, I, I, you know, it's either going to be that, we're moving into that world, or as you say, and as I hope, this is their last gasp. Right, and I, I, do, I do feel like they're on the ropes. I feel like they wanted to do this stuff a lot more uh, slowly. They wanted a, a Senate China to be dominant by then. They wanted to uh, complete deindustrialization. They wanted the opiate crisis to be ramped up to um, uh, far higher than it is today. And like the, the reason, there's two things that are going, uh, why they're terrified is one, uh, uh, despite all of the uh, literal violence against regular people, um, that people are more uh, antagonistic to the neoliberal uh, post-Cold War uh, consensus. And number two, um, and this relates back to the, the 2020 election, is despite all the censorship, Trump did exactly what he said he was going to do in that election, which was to broaden the coalition of his base. Um, and there's a lot, what we could debate what happened or how it happened to ad infinitum, but we saw a guy who literally ran against Mexico in 2016, uh, not just Hispanics, but Mexican Americans, they turned out in a way that they never turned out for a Republican ever, you know? Okay. And, and that's the thing is like, they, it, it's a remarkable thing, despite all the censorship, despite all the propaganda, um, all of these people from all different kinds of walks of life that are taught to be antagonistic towards one another by the media, by um, you know the internet culture, all this stuff, decided to uh, put bygones aside and actually cooperate in so, uh, like kind of a true American sense. The, the reason why they go so hard after America, you know, going back to what we said, America is the uh, the most anti-neoliberal country in the world. We are anti-colonial in the sense of colonialism as it means to uh, expropriate capital from um, uh, other countries. We are so radically anti that, that we, they are the people who are in charge of these uh, grifts, these oligarchs, they are terrified to their bones of a regular person who like for the most part is actually extremely nonviolent. And uh, why are they terrified of it? Because the average American has the ability to just not cooperate and get along with their life with this stuff because they are not submissive. They are. Well, we, we developed the American system, the American economic system. You mentioned Henry Clay going back. Lincoln. I'm so glad that you know what that is. Oh yeah, uh, no, I love day. the American system, and it's a great principle. I mean, you know, the army in, of interest, internal in, internal development, tariffs, relation friendly relations with other nations based on American interest, uh, sovereignty. You know, and this was embraced by other countries. It was embraced by Germany. It was embraced by uh, various countries. In a way, China is probably the most biggest example of it now. And that it's basically the uh, the concert of nations, each operating in its own interests, 
and uh, each resolving conflicts when they come out more locally than internationally. So we don't have everybody piling on. And I think that uh, they did not expect Trump to come along and win. They did not expect Trump to do so well in his reelection. I would argue he probably did a lot better than we know he did. Oh yeah. Uh, you know, you mentioned they did. They expected the usual co race conflict that they would stoke, and they do it every four years. It didn't really fly. So now they're looking at microscope. You know, the the micromanagement. They'll put everybody under a microscope now to find out if you said something racist in 1959. You right. know which uh, they, they will then use to destroy you unless you're one of them. And, uh, you know, I mean, you look at the, just to, to wrap up, I mean, in Massachusetts, where I live in Boston, Trump did better by significant margins in cities like Lawrence and, and uh, Holyoke and New Bedford, because they have a large population of Hispanics, people of color. He did better in Boston. Uh, you know, I think he might have even done a little better than we know if they didn't have some interesting electronic things going on, which we won't mention. But the point is I'm, I'm making is that I don't think they expected that. And I think that they're now doing double duty to, to kind of hang on to, to, the, to the levers of power and uh, to continue to push this narrative of divisiveness and, and, um, and conflict. Absolutely. And, you know, just to make people feel a little bit better about this is like, you know, after the revolution, um, the kind of the same prototypical um, international finance people, um, you know, for, through the British Empire pushed for the uh, multiple conspiracies from Aaron Burr to funding Santa Ana, invasion of the United States to, uh, you know, the things around 1812 and all the way to the Civil War and stoking the creation of the Confederacy. And that all huh. along the way, we won every single time they quit. Oh, it's an interesting history. I mean, Britain was the main enemy of the United States right up to the turn of the century. And they were certainly right. involved in various intrigues, just like they were involved in, 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 in that in India and countries around the world. And they, like, rep they represented this concept that we now embrace, this kind of world order concept. Right. And like, uh, and like Abraham Lincoln, Henry Clay and all these guys before we won once, we'll win again. And that's why they're terrified. It's because they haven't been able to defeat the American spirit because the American spirit is bigger than what they understand it to be. That's right. And I think that I, I still feel optimistic in, in, in what you're saying and that we still have the constitution and we still have the growing number of people who understand it. So Adam, you know, really great talk. You know, I really appreciate meeting you and, um, this, I, I hope to do it from time to time. I would be honored. It'd be my privilege. And we'll Thank talk American systems more. Oh, you bet. So let my listeners and viewers know where they can get information about you, any websites you'd like to share. So I'm still making my website and trying to become more of a media figure, but I just have a Twitter right now. It's at the Adam K12 uh, on Twitter. And um, so you can just, if you look up American system of political economy, it's in my, uh, it's in my uh, bio, so, uh, but, you know, as that grows, I'll eventually have a website where I talk a little bit more about this thing. Great. I mean, I'd like to reach, reach out to you because I'm writing a series of short books, almost like pamphlets, and I, and I want to do my next one on this very subject, so. Absolutely. I love it. Excellent. All right, Adam, listen, thanks so much for joining me this afternoon. Thank you very much for having me. It was my pleasure.